0: Every movement has a leader. Anything that has ever been accomplished worth talking about has had a leader. Some of those leaders are good and some of them are bad. Some of them are evil and some of them are people who are godly and of good intent. Jesus was the leader and is the leader of a movement that has lasted for 2,000 years. He said, I'm it. You're looking for a way? Look to me. You're looking for truth? Listen to me. You're looking for life? You'll only find it in me. Jesus did not come to preach the gospel. He is the gospel. The gospel is not about being a Baptist. The gospel is not about any denomination or any slant or preference. The gospel at its core is about one thing, the proclamation that Jesus Christ is exactly who he said he was. Every movement begins with a leader. There are political leaders. Jesus is not the leader of a political movement. Some people try to use Jesus in their political movements. He will not be used. He is not the movement, uh, leader of a movement of style. He is not the leader of a movement of preference. Jesus is the leader of a single file movement where everybody marches in line toward his kingdom toward the building of his kingdom. If Christianity did not have Christ, we would be just another dead religion with a man whose body is in the grave who was a sinner just like us. But because Christianity is built on the life of Christ, our leader is alive. He is not in a grave. He is alive, and he is leading a movement that will have a culmination At the end of time when there is a new heaven and a new earth and he will sit on the throne and those who have surrendered to him will find themselves before that throne worshiping him. So let's talk about the first movement. Started with Jesus, he called 12. When the church forgets that we are on mission and in a movement to change and radically transform this world, then we lose the ground that God has told us to conquer. The church is not supposed to be in a defensive position, holding on until Jesus comes back, hiding behind our four walls and praying that the world doesn't get to us. No, we are to storm the gates of hell. That's our purpose. That's what Jesus came to do. You never find Jesus afraid to go anywhere or talk to anybody. Jesus was on mission. and you think about that first Jesus movement and that first Jesus generation. The first thing is no one was excluded. No one was excluded. Prostitutes, tax collectors, the dregs of society, the up and up and the down and out, they were all included. There were no outcasts as far as Jesus was concerned. He touched lepers. Nobody touched lepers. Nobody was excluded. Secondly, there were no borders. He said, take the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the othermost parts of the earth. That meant get out of your box. Get out of your comfort zone. If you want to be a part of this movement, if you want to be a part of my generation, then quit just talking to people that look and act like you. Get out of your comfort zone. Get out of your box and do what I have called you to do. Thirdly, there was no time limit. He said just before he gave the Great Commission, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This movement started with Jesus and it continues today. Now in your notes, you'll see that in this book, What Jesus Started, Steve Addison writes of six characteristics of movements. And I want to share those with you today because I believe that God wants to start a movement. We got everybody else starting a movement. We ought to just say, hey, God, it's time for you to start a movement and we volunteer. I said, it's time for you to start a movement and we volunteer. Okay, there's 100 of us out of 1,500 that want to be a part of a movement. You, listen, you're either going to be a part of a movement or just plan your funeral. There's not much in between. If you're not radical for Jesus, Jesus says, if you can't give it all up to be with me, I don't need you. I mean, those were the words of Jesus. I'm just the messenger boy. Okay? I'm just a messenger boy. The rich young ruler, we would have put on the finance committee, Jesus said, I don't need him. He won't give up his stuff to follow me. I don't need him. You see, Jesus raised the bar high. Jesus didn't say, How low can we make this bar so everybody feels comfortable? He said, If you're coming to follow me, you better be ready to die. That's what Jesus calls us to. So, how do you start that kind of movement? Well, you don't start it with a bunch of pansies, I can tell you that. You don't start it with wimps. You don't start it with cowards. You don't start it with people that are intimidated by this world. You start it with people that say, I want to be a game changer. Amen. First thing, you see the end. You see the end. If you're going to be a part of that kind of movement, you see the end. Movements obey God to fulfill his mission to the end of Of the age it's not just while I'm a teenager or or while I'm young but after I get married and have kids then I kind of back off on being a part you're not a part of the movement or when I get old and I you know I'm retired I just want to enjoy my life and I want to spend the rest of my life in an RV and in a campground you're not a part of the movement the movement never takes a rest the movement is always on mission secondly it connects with people it connects with people it means it crosses All the lines, all the borders, all the boundaries, linguistic, geographic, cultural, social, economic, whatever we have to do to connect with lost people. Thirdly, it shares the gospel. It's a proclamation through preaching, through teaching, through instruction, through evangelizing, through witnessing, through counseling, whatever form it takes, there's a sharing of the gospel. We're not a part of a movement if we're not sharing the gospel. We're just a part of a dead church. If we're not sharing the gospel as a church, we are not a part of the movement, and God can't entrust us with more. Number four, we train disciples. We teach people to obey God. Listen, you know what part of my role is? Is to just tell you what you already know to get you to try to do it. That's part of my role as a pastor. Half of what I tell you is not new. It's just you may not be doing anything about it. I have to remind myself to do it, and then we have to train disciples. It's not just, well, get them saved and get them in the water, and, and that's good. Let's not worry about them anymore. No, we're to raise up disciples to maturity so that they can teach others also. We're to train disciples. We're to gather in communities, to gather in communities, to reach a region, to cooperate in prayer, in giving, in serving, and sharing. We gather in communities. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. I mean, even the Lone Ranger had Tonto. And people say, well, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. You don't love Jesus. I can just tell you flat out, you do not love Jesus if you don't love the church. Say, well, the church has got all kinds of problems. So does your family. So does the place you work. You going to quit that too? Well, I just want to go to a place where there are no hypocrites. Well, if you join, there will be one. Hey, there are no perfect churches. Jesus is trying to get the church to look more like the church ought to look, and when we cooperate with them, we look a little more like the church ought to look, and then the, when the world sees us, they see the difference between us and dead religion. So we're to gather in communities and serve. Then we're to multiply workers. We're to multiply workers. A movement has to multiply workers. We have to get people engaged and involved in working and serving. We've got people that right now have been teaching in our children's ministry for 20 and 30 years. Guess what? They're not going to live forever. And some of you have been sitting in a Sunday school class for 20 or 30 years and never thought about helping to do anything. Can I just exhort you in the love of Jesus to get off your blessed assurance and go invest in somebody that needs your life. And needs your touch somebody's got to pick up the baton somebody's got to carry the ball because if if enough of us just sit around and wait on somebody else to serve us at some point it's gonna be like going to a local restaurant and they got two waitresses and three tour buses showed up and we wonder why there's not any service because nobody volunteered to serve I remember a church I served in South Carolina our preschool area was so bad this is literally Three years, three years, this is the way we started. Fred would say, Michael, you or Charles need to go out and tell them. Charles, you want to do it this time or you want me to do it? Uh, you do it this time. So this is what we do, live television, live television. Folks, we need 12 more workers in preschool. We are not starting the service until we get 12 more workers. All right, there's two. Now we need 10. And we'd stand there and wait. Say, folks, choir's not going to sing. We're not going to stand in praise and lift our hands to Jesus. Preacher's not going to preach. You're not going to get to fill out the notes. Well, okay, now we're down to eight. We just need eight more. Every Sunday for three years, we had to do that. Now, folks, that's a shame to the kingdom of God. Jesus said, if you want to know what the kingdom of God is, look, look at children. We ought to have an abundance of people that work with children and preschoolers because if we really want the next generation, then we ought to do something about serving them. Doing for them what they cannot do for themselves. So what's the master's plan? Jesus came in the fullness of time. I would have picked a different time personally because, I mean, Jesus could have just texted his messages to all of us. We could all have all been on a text thread. He could have done a Facebook Live on the Sea of Galilee. Here I am walking on the water. I mean, Galilee is controlled by the Roman Empire. They rule with an iron fist. The Greek language and the Greek culture runs it. It's a poor nation. It is overrun and beaten down. It's surrounded by pagan cities and culture. And Jesus shows up in Galilee of all places. There are two major cities in Galilee. Galilee. Sephorus and Tiberias, about 10 to 20,000 people in each one of those cities. So Jesus did not begin his ministry in the cultural center of Israel, in Jerusalem. He began it in small towns. He went to a town like Leesburg and established a worldwide ministry. Sephorus, Tiberias, and he preached the gospel. There was a major trade route that went through Galilee across to Egypt and across to the other side toward the Roman Empire. But every day in Galilee, if you were just paying attention, you would meet a Roman soldier, a Greek, a barbarian, a Jew, a tax collector, a fisherman, a housewife, a leper, a prostitute. I mean, you met all of life in Galilee. In the area of Galilee, there are 175 people towns and villages. If you sit on the Sea of Galilee today at night, outside of Tiberias, it looks remarkably like it did 2,000 years ago. Little spots of villages, 50 people here, 25 people there, 100 people over here. Just a little light here and there across the mountain ranges around Galilee, much like it looked at the time of Jesus the stress and the hatred and the distrust between the classes. You had nobility, royalty, elites, politicians, tax collectors and judges, and they ruled with an iron fist. On the next level down were the self-employed, the merchants, the craftsmen, the fishermen, and the farmers. On the next level down were the peasants and the destitute who lived on the fringes. And then there were the nobodies, the lepers, the beggars, the prostitutes, the robbers, and the thieves. It was a perfect environment for God to show up. Can I tell you something? In southwest Georgia, we have every one of those. Every one of those level of people we've got. Now, you may live with blinders on and not see it, but if you wake up and smell the coffee, every one of those kind of people lives in this region. So our responsibility as a church is to pay attention to every one of those kind of people. Say, well, I've never met anybody with leprosy. Well, you probably haven't, but you know people that are eaten up with sin that is destroying their bodies and their minds So what was Jesus' message to the people? Well, he went to a little place called Nazareth. Turn to Luke chapter 4. He went to a place called Nazareth. His message to the people, we were, our last trip to uh, Israel, we went into Nazareth the first time we had done that and went into the synagogue that sits on the site of the first century synagogue. So we were literally just right at the area, this little small synagogue that sits in Nazareth where Jesus just... 2,000 years ago would have been in that same area at the synagogue of the first century and he would have spoken these words, Luke 4, 16 and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and he was his custom he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath now I just want to stop right there you, you got friends that always find reasons to miss church Jesus had every reason to miss church the, the priest of his synagogue didn't even recognize he was the son of God and yet he went, as was his custom. The problem with our culture today, as was his custom, has left our vocabulary. We're no longer faithful to church. We start planning on Monday how we're going to not have to come to church on Sunday. Start trying to figure out how we can miss, where we can go. As was his custom. Now, if God could go to a dead church, you ought to be able to come to a live one like this one. Amen. I mean, if God can show up and listen to a guy that doesn't even recognize that God's in the room, you ought to be able to show up for this one. Uh, just a side note that didn't cost you anything out of the offering. He stood up to read and he booked the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing gospel Matthew tells us that Jesus touched all of those towns and communities around Galilee so in some way which we don't always have recorded in the scripture Jesus found himself in every small village in Galilee 175 villages and he took the gospel to Samaria and he went to the Decapolis which were the cities that were predominantly Gentile non-Jewish the ten cities of the Decapolis, which is what we know as the Golan Heights today. He took the gospel there. So between him sending out his disciples and him going himself, probably 200,000 people saw or heard Jesus or one of his initial followers. 11 people, 11 disciples. Let's just throw Judas out early. 11 disciples of Jesus. So 12 people took the gospel to 200,000 people. How many of us are in this room? They did it in less than three years. How long would it take us to touch 200,000 people? So well, we're busy. Yeah, you're busy touching lost people at the business you go to, at the Walmart, at the grocery store, at the drugstore, when you're getting gas. You're, you're busy everywhere full of lost people. They touched these people. They, they took the gospel to the Jews and the Gentiles so that it would fulfill Isaiah's prophecy. The Galilee of the Gentiles has seen a great light. Jesus never ignored a Gentile. Now, I've been in churches where people ignore folks that don't look like them. Now, let's just mark, let's just mark it up right here. That's not a church. That's a religious social club. They don't have Jesus. As Jesus said, you can't love God and hate your brother. So if there's somebody you don't like because of the way they look, then you're not saved. Say, well, I was just raised that way. Well, your, your raising needs to die and your resurrection needs to live. You need to get over yourself. Just because your mom and daddy raised you that way doesn't mean you got to be that way. Took it to the Gentiles. What was his message to the power brokers? Well, the power brokers that day were the Pharisees. I mean, they, they ran the communities. Those synagogues, they ran the communities. And he went to the synagogue. And man, you talk about kicking up trouble. It's like Jesus went to pick a fight. The Pharisees, he could have just stayed and avoided them and everything, but he, he, you know, just use your sanctified imagination a little bit. So Jesus looks around and says, you know, these Pharisees, they got all these rules and everything. They don't want you to do this and this and this on the Sabbath. I think I'll just heal somebody on the Sabbath. I think there was a, it's just my opinion. I think there was a side conversation. I think Jesus turned to Peter, James, and John said, watch this. I'm about to tick off this guy. take up your bed and walk. You can't do that on the Sabbath. Who said, I'm God, I make the rules. You guys made rules I didn't make. They had encrusted the church and hardened the synagogues with legalism and rules and regulations. And Jesus said, hey, I came to set people free. That was his message to the power brokers. What's his message to us? Matthew twenty-eight eighteen. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's his message to us. It hadn't changed. His message to those disciples in Matthew and just before he ascended, uh, which we read in the first chapter of Acts, Message to them and to us is the same. Now, as I began working on this message a few weeks ago, I began to th- sit down and write out and think through all the parallels between today and the 1960s in the Jesus movement when I came to Christ. The world was about to implode. And here were the things that were going on just as God began to say, I'm about to show up and do something. There was the fear of nuclear annihilation. I remember getting under my desk in elementary school, like that was going to protect me from an atomic bomb. You know, a metal desk with a laminate top, get under your desk in case, you know, and close your eyes, like that's going to protect me if the Russians nuked us. The fear of nuclear annihilation. Those who were not alive at that time have no clue how close we came to a nuclear war with Cuba in the 1960s. There was radical politics, draft card burning, Hell's Angels, the Black Panthers. By the way, the Black Panthers held America in fear, and an FBI agent was asked, during the 1960s, how many Black Panthers do you think there are? He said, as best we can tell, we can name 83. 83 people put America in fear, and the church stayed silent. Drugs, sex, the growing influence of the occult, civil rights movement the assassination of three national leaders war napalm vietnam broadcast into our homes like never before the berlin wall the cuban missile crisis the six day war in israel playboy magazine constantly promoting sexual hedonism and episcopalian minister joseph fletcher formed the new morality that said you could leave god out of decision making when i was in high school the first r rated movie came out it was the graduate Segregation, integration, liberals taught situational ethics and conservatives began to add rules and become legalist. Anti-establishment sit-ins in the church was quiet and status quo was the norm. On April the 8th, 1966, the Time magazine cover said, Is God Dead?, The press started calling what was happening in my generation the generation gap, because there were new heroes, new music, new causes, new slogans, new drugs, new gods. Edward Plowden in the Jesus Movement in America said, that decade ranks as one of the most convulsive periods of social ferment and change in American history. Reaction and chain reaction erupted in our streets, And on our campuses. The slogans of the 1960s sound very familiar to the slogans of the 21st century Burn, baby, burn. Molotov cocktails, street rioting, kill the pigs, the National Guard called out, tear gas, bombings, rioting, mobs, the yippies fought the police at the Democratic National Convention. And in the middle of all of that, God sent a little breeze of his spirit to the West Coast. 1966, April 1966, is God dead? By the last cover of 1969, Time Magazine asked the question, is God coming back to life? Three years How can we get to the point where God will come back to life in our city, in our community, in our hearts, in this nation? You see, when God came to life, or at least when we let God take over, and that movement swept across America, when God came to life, We didn't have evangelism explosion. We didn't have continued witness training. We didn't have the three circles. We didn't have a bracelet. We didn't have anything. All we had was changed lives, and we told people that our lives had been changed. We weren't trained in evangelism. We didn't know what to do. Listen, every person in this room is more trained than we were ever trained Every person in this room. And by the way, if you're saved, you're supposed to be a witness. It's not just for people with the gift of evangelism. I don't have the gift of evangelism, but that does not excuse me from sharing the gospel with people. Well, I just don't feel comfortable talking to lost people. Well, somebody felt comfortable talking to you when you were lost. So whose blood will be on our hands? in Albany, and Leesburg, and in Smithville, and in Dawson, and in Cordill, and Sylvester, whose blood will be on the hands of this church because we did not do what God put us here to do, to share the gospel with this community. The Jesus movement didn't have seminars. We just knew we were supposed to tell people what God had done with us. We were supposed to witness By the way, the word witness in the New Testament is always used as a noun. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will be, you will be, that's the verb, my witnesses. The difference in going out and witnessing and being a witness, when I go out to witness, that's a verb. I am a witness, that's a noun. And by the way, every one of us are a witness, good or bad. Somebody sees you out in the community and you're doing something that you ought not to be doing, you're a bad witness for Jesus. You're witnessing. Everyone in this room, when you walk out of this room, you're a witness, good or bad. If you're not doing anything, you're a bad witness. Because what it says is, Christ makes no difference in me other than a couple hours on Sunday. We are to be a noun witness. To begin another movement, we have to be noun first people so that what we are impacts what we do. A witness is somebody who has seen something and says something. That's what you do in a court. You testify about what you've seen and heard. So we're to testify. You say, Well, I don't know a lot of scripture and I wouldn't do apologetics and and I don't know. Listen, all you got to do, nobody can deny a changed life. Nobody can deny your story. I was lost, I was without Christ. And one day I became convicted of my sin that I was in need of a Savior that if I did not give my heart and my life to Jesus Christ that I would spend eternity in a place called hell. But that Christ came and died for me, gave his life for me, suffered for me. A man who knew no sin became sin for me and took my sin on himself at a cross. And when I asked him into my life, he came in to live inside of me. I didn't see it, but I knew it. Now, that's my witness. What's yours? When we got saved, we went to to the streets, to bars, to coffee houses, because somewhere somebody told us, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I found the testimony of one of the guys on the West Coast. You'll forgive the the dated introduction, but just so you know, something did happen before you were born. So you'll forgive a little bit of his language. I'm a little nobody who once freaked out on Jesus, a nobody made into something clean and pure and better. Now, praise Jesus, I'm grooving on him and growing in my grooving every day. Now I'm high on gospel tracks. I put them everywhere, on the handle of the john, behind the ears of mannequins, in paper sacks at Kmart, inside dirty books, in the seats of cars, inside church hymnals. On tables, in bars, in the pockets of suits, at the men's store, in new purses, at the ladies' shop, in the night depository, at the bank. Man, I love to lay Jesus on them. I wonder, I wonder, if we had to do your funeral this week, would anybody be able to stand up here and say, they love to lay Jesus on people? or does your family even know you have a testimony do you have a witness do you know that you know that you have a testimony can you articulate in one or two or three minutes who you were before you were saved how you got saved and what you've been since you've been saved can you share that with somebody if you can have you shared it with somebody Let me ask you, if we went around this room and just started going down the rows and locked the doors and you couldn't leave, and I started up here, could you, by the time I got to you, come up with a story? Or if I said, okay, just tell me, when's the last time you told somebody about Jesus? Has it been a week, a month, a year, 10 years? Never. Never. When's the last time you walked out of this church and told somebody that needed Jesus how they could find him? If you had the cure to cancer, I guarantee you, you'd tell everybody you knew. If you had the cure to bringing prodigals home out of the pig pen, you'd tell everybody you knew. If you knew how to fix the economic crisis in Albany, Georgia, you'd tell everybody you knew. Do you have a personal testimony of the life-changing power of Jesus Christ? Notice, I did not ask you if you were religious. I did not ask you if you were sincere. I did not ask you how much time you come to church. I didn't ask you what you give. I ask you, do you have a witness? Has Christ changed your life?